Well, I'm glad to be with you again. Um, we're going to be continuing in our <clears throat> exposition of the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, we began to look at Jesus' sheep ranching metaphor uh, in chapter 10, where he exposes and rebukes the false shepherds of Israel. He basically told them that his sheep, those whom he calls by name, the elect is who he was referring to, his people from eternity past, they know his voice and they're not going to follow strangers. In other words, they're not going to, in the ultimate sense, follow the false shepherds. They're going to not be with them for long, if at all, they're going to come to the Lord when he calls them. And so we looked at the summons of the good shepherd how He effectually calls His sheep to Himself through the Holy Spirit. This morning we're going to look at the second section where Jesus continues to hammer the false shepherds and simultaneously declare Himself as Israel's true shepherd. We will be focusing on the salvation of the Good Shepherd this morning, how He saves His sheep. So last week, it was about how He summons them and calls them. This week, it's about how He saves them. Please take your Bibles and turn over to John 10. We're going to be focusing today on verses 7 through 21. Pretty, pretty large section there today. Kind of a lot for, for me. And uh, I could have just kept writing and writing and writing and writing. And then I realized uh, you won't have anyone there by the time you're done with this thing if you keep going. Uh, maybe one or two people, probably Shelly. Uh, and maybe, maybe Daryl, I don't know. Maybe Miles, maybe, but Miles would probably be giving me hard looks. Uh, but uh, Miles like, I've never given you a hard look. Well, you would if I preached for two hours. Uh, but anyways, John chapter 10, verses 7 through 21. That will be our text for this morning. And I'd like to pick it up right there at verse 7. I'm not going to read the whole section out loud right now because it's just too big to do that and do everything else. We'll walk through it. So let's begin at verse 7. Are you there? Great. And I want to encourage you just quickly, um, even though I you know, call out the text and read through the text and teach the text, I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. And maybe you have a Bible app on your phone or something like that, but it's good kind of to listen and to kind of follow along in your own Bible. You get more familiar with the text yourself when you're looking at it. So I want to encourage you to do that. And verse 7 says, So Jesus again said to them, so He's still speaking to the same crowd. This is all part of the same narrative. He's still speaking to the man who was formerly blind and the Pharisees that were there and all the other people. This is a, a, a new thing that Jesus is saying to the same crowd. So Jesus again says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So again, the first thing we want to notice here is the double truly. This is the second one in this chapter that we've seen so far. Again, what does it signify? It signifies whenever we see truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending on your translation, it signifies that Jesus is about to say something very, very important, something that's of heightened importance. And then what does He do? He refers to Himself as the door of the sheep. So the super, super important thing that he wants to tell them is that I am the door to the sheep. Now, I want you to notice again here 
the phrase, I am. Do you see it there? I am the door of the sheep. This is Jesus' third I am statement in John's gospel. And, and I went over this last week because we saw one. There's actually two of them in the same chapter, which is extraordinary. That doesn't happen normally. There's seven total, and we've got two right here back to back. And, and this would be the third one in the Gospel of John, and it points to the Christophany, the pre-incarnate, um, uh, pre-incarnate visit of Christ, you know, before He became a man. That's what a Christophany is. And in this context, it's Exodus 3, where we hear the words of the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, the words speaking out of the burning bush, and they say to Moses, tell the Israelites, I am sent you. So when Jesus says, I am, and I know I've told you this before, but I think it's important to reiterate because it's here. When Jesus says, I am, he is declaring himself deity. He is declaring himself to be God. He is even declaring himself to be the one who is speaking to Moses. And the truth is that those who were standing there listening to him when he did this, and he may have done it more than seven times, I don't know, but John has seven of them recorded, But whenever he said, I am, his audience, the Jewish people, would have known exactly what he meant. And this is what ticked them off. Because when he declared himself to be God, it made them really, really mad. Not all of them, but the Jewish religious leaders. So we have to ask ourselves a question here. Because Jesus just said, I am the door of the sheep, right? So we have to ask the question, what is the function of a door? What does a door do? Pretty elementary question. Well, what it actually does, boiled down, is it it gives or denies access to a room or area, right? These doors over here, if I open that door, it gives me access to that hallway and everything that's beyond that door. If it's closed, I can't get back there. I probably could if I turned the knob. If it was locked, I couldn't do anything. But you understand what I mean. Basic point, it gives or denies access to a room or area. And the point Jesus is making is that as the door, Jesus gives access to his sheep. Access to what? Down in verse 9, the pasture. Not the pastor, that's me. The pasture where sheep graze and eat and get nourished. So the highly important spiritual meaning of this metaphor Jesus is using is it is very simple that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only access point into eternal life. He is that door that grants access to eternal life, to heaven. It is through Him alone. He is the doorway to salvation. So think of it that way. We must enter through Jesus, who is the door, because there is no other door. There is no other way in. In other words, He's the only door. He's not just the door. He's the only door. He's the only way, right? A little later in John 14, 6, and I've cited this verse several times, Jesus put it like this, I am the way. You could say, I am the door, if you want there. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because I'm the door. I'm the only way. I'm the only way to the Father. The Father in this context, in that 14.6 verse, symbolizes eternal life because that's basically what eternal life is boiled down. It's to be in the presence of the everlasting Father where His joy, love, and mercy and all those things reign supreme. And Peter declared the same truth a little differently when he was standing before Israel's Supreme Court 
known as the Sanhedrin. He proclaimed this in front of all these religious leaders. He said, there is salvation in no one else. In other words, there is only one door. (laughs) For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. And in verses 8 through 10, Jesus continues to compare and contrast the false shepherds with himself because that's what he's been doing. They're like this, I'm like this. And he continues to do that in the next couple of verses. Now, I want you to keep in mind again that many of these false shepherds were standing there. You had hostile Pharisees who were a part of the religious establishment and order there that were standing there listening to him along with everyone else. And so (laughs) Jesus said difficult things right in front of his adversaries. Now let's look at 8 through 10. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. (laughs) Who's he talking about? The guys that are sitting there in all the fancy clothing looking at him going, what's he doing now? Oh no, he's talking about us. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I mean, this is terrible for these guys, right? And he says, but the sheep did not listen to them. And he repeats himself, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says in 10, the thief. (laughs) Who is he talking about? The thief. The guy's right there. They're thieves and robbers. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And then he says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In verse 8, he literally calls them thieves and robbers. And then he says, and the sheep did not listen to them. And by the way, they're thieves and robbers, but my sheep don't listen to them, is what he says. And how are they thieves? Well, as thieves, these guys, you familiar with the Gospels and what the Pharisees and these guys did? You look at the Gospels, you'll discover that they stole people's money. They stole people's houses. They stole people's properties. They even defrauded widows, elderly widows who had lost their husbands. They even somehow manipulated them with the religion. Well, God wants you to do this and God wants you to do that and all that. But they defrauded them out of their homes and put widows on the streets. That's that's low. That is really, really low, man, right? Can you imagine having a widow, someone who lost their husband and can't really take care of herself and then to somehow manipulate her with your religion and then taking her house from her? That's precisely what these Pharisees and these religious leaders did, these false shepherds. You get a chance later on, go back and look at Luke 20, verse 47. And this is interesting. Have you ever read the story or maybe heard the story of the widow's mite? Right? It's where that, that um, older poor widow, you know, she puts in her last copper coins in the temple treasury, right? We see it in Luke 21, 1 through 4. And Jesus says, look, those wealthy people are putting in, you know, just out of the excess that they have. And she's putting in all she has, right? It seems like this really interesting sentimental moment there with Jesus kind of, you know, uh, kind of rebuking them because they're giving out of their excess and exalting her because she's gone way beyond them and given what she really can't give. And so some people say this story has to do with, you know, it's about trusting God. Look at how the widow trusted God, you know, or, uh, you know, look at how the widow loved God more than she loved her money and, you know, or, or look at how she personally sacrificed. That's the spin that just about every pastor, not all, there's a few out there like me that don't, but that's the spin that most pastors put on it. And they, they interpret Jesus' words as being positive 
in relation to her and what's going on there. But you know what? I believe she was actually deceived and trying to earn her way with God by putting in those last coins. Consider the religion at hand. It was a corrupted, disgusting, manipulative, exploitive religion that basically told you if you didn't give, if you didn't do this, if you didn't do that, you basically wouldn't go to heaven. God wouldn't be pleased with you. That was the religion of that day, which is very similar to certain types of religion in our day. Uh, in fact, ancient Judaism was a lot like American religion, right? There is such a thing as American religion. There's a such thing as American Christianity, and there's such thing as true Christianity. In American Christianity, American religion, it's basically all about merit. It's all about good deeds versus bad deeds. And, and these false shepherds that Jesus is rebuking and exposing here back in His day, they literally perpetuated, spread an early version of the prosperity gospel, the thing that we see today. They spread it then, and they would say things like give and get, right? Put in two coins and receive four back from the Lord. You ever heard anyone say that from a pulpit? Boy, if you give and put in there, I'll tell you what, God's going to come back tenfold and hook you up. Well, you're presuming upon the Lord that He's going to return monetary thing to you, and you, plus you're promoting a reward system, which is not what Christianity is about. And Solomon was literally right when he said, right in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. That religion was corrupt, and I think that woman, may, maybe I'm wrong, maybe MacArthur and others who interpret those words differently are wrong, but I think what she was doing was she felt like, I have to put it in or else I'm not going to be blessed. I have to put it in or else I'm not going to prosper. I have to put it in or else I'm not going to go to heaven. I, I mean, that, that is the religion of that day. And these guys cultivated this system and perpetuated it. That's how they were thieves. They would, they would frighten and scare people into going beyond what is required of them so that they could have some peace of mind that they were going to go to heaven or whatever. It was terrible, terrible. They were thieves. But they were also robbers. As robbers, the false shepherds robbed people of the truth and gave them false religion. They, they were trying to rob them of their own Messiah who was standing in their midst. They were robbing people of the actual truth, how people get saved and all of that, the Word of God. And they were taking that and replacing it with false religion. Put in two coins, get four. You know, do this, God will be pleased with you. Oh, you're sick, it's because you've been sinning like crazy. Well, I just have a flu. Well, it's because you're a sinner. <laughs> Obviously, you probably never get sick. No, I never get sick. Why? Because I don't sin. Oh. <laughs> this is the way they thought. This is what they taught. They robbed. They were robbers. They robbed people of truth. They tried to rob people of their Messiah. Instead of pointing to Him, they pointed to the Mosaic Law. You know, they pointed to their man-made religious traditions, which were more important than God's law, you know, and, and Jesus basically boils it down that you guys are thieves, you're robbers, and then He tells them that His sheep, the sheep, did not listen to them. They're not going to follow along. My sheep, the real sheep, they're not, the goats will follow you all day long. They'll go everywhere you go and do everything you tell them to do, but my sheep won't. And this is essentially what we're seeing here is a reiteration of verse 5, right? He's already said these things. The sheep are not going to listen to you. They don't listen to strangers. He's just repeating himself in another way here. In verse 9, Jesus repeats himself again. I am the door. 
And then he adds, he says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And then what he does is he takes it a little further and he describes how a person is saved. And he says they must enter through the door, which is Christ himself. Anyone who enters by me. So you go through the door of Christ. That's how a person is saved. How do we do it? How do the sheep do it? Every sheep does it exactly the same way. It's by grace through faith. And you can look at that in Ephesians 2.8, which I cite all the time. A lot of people ask the question, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Obviously, it's different from the New Testament. It's exactly the same, by grace through faith. We have such an advantage over them, though, because the Messiah has come. They were waiting for him to come. We have seen his arrival and his work. So they were trusting in the same Messiah. The sheep were trusting in the same Messiah back then by grace through faith. And I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. According to the Bible, faith has three components to it. I say these things because we tend to believe that, well, faith is just I believe in Jesus and I'm good to go. Well, it's a little broader than that. It has to do with three things. It has to do with knowledge of who Christ is and what he did for you, died, buried, rose. And then the secondly, it's, it's conviction. What does conviction mean? It means to agree with. You agree with who he is and you agree with what he did for you. It's not enough to know. There are, I would say the vast majority of people in this country know, but they do not agree, and they certainly do not do the third one, which is trust. Trust. Knowledge, conviction, trust. What is trust? It is assent. It is confidence in who Christ is and in what He did for you, right? So that's true biblical faith, three components, knowledge, conviction, trust. In who? Jesus, in what? What he did and accomplished for you, his life, death, burial, resurrection, however you want to articulate the gospel there. That's the key. Jesus also said that the person who enters by him will go in and out and find pasture. What on earth does he mean here? What, what is he saying? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Going in and out has to do with always having access to God's Mercy, God's grace, God's blessings, God's protection. Right? You get the idea of somebody going in and out of the sheepfold with the shepherd. The shepherd's always with them, always there to bless, always there to heal the infirmities, certainly heal the spiritual wounds, certainly help with and maybe heal the emotional wounds. But the idea there is the shepherd's there all the time in and out of the pasture, and he's there to bless with God's blessings. He's there to protect and then finding pasture has to do with being fed and nourished by Christ. And how does he do that? Through his word, right? You find pasture, you found what you need, spiritual sustenance, right? That's where the sheep find the green grass and the cool brook that they can drink water and be nourished. So we go in and out, we find pasture in Christ, and he nourishes us by His Word and through His Word. And how does He do that? And he always does it when we pick up the Bible and, and start reading the Bible, but also through some competent and uh, faithful under-shepherds who preach His Word. Some of my favorites would be MacArthur and Sproul, and, and I like some of John Piper's stuff and all that. So that's how Christ nourishes His sheep, through His Word and through faithful men who proclaim it. 
In verse 10, Jesus contrasts the purpose of the false shepherds with his purpose. Okay, so he, here's why they've come, here's why I've come is what he does. The false shepherds, whom Jesus calls the thief, they've come to do what? Steal and kill and destroy. Previously, Jesus said, you're just here to do your father's work. Yeah, we are. Abraham, no, that's not your dad. Your dad's Satan. Their purpose is to serve their master. Even though they think they're serving God, it's to serve the devil. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, on the other hand, has come that they, who's they? The sheep, his sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. There's the purpose, the purpose of the false shepherds to kill, steal, and destroy, do the work of Satan. There's the work of the good shepherd, the true shepherd, is to give life and give it abundantly, to serve his Father's will, right, who is not the devil, who is Father God. In verse 11, Jesus gives himself a new title, and he says how he will give his sheep life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And he says this, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Wow. The first thing we see here is the fourth I am statement. Again, what is he saying? I am God. And the term good refers to Jesus's noble character and impeccability, his perfection, right? And you can only say of anyone who's actually good that God alone is good because only he is perfect. And yet people are always describing themselves as being a good person. Well, by God's standards, if you're not in Christ, you're a goat. You're not good. If you're in Christ, you're still not good. Christ is good. You have His righteousness. You're kind of good. But we're not good. The only one who's good is God. And here, He's the good shepherd. Again, a reference to His deity. But also His perfection, His character, His impeccability. MacArthur wrote, he is the perfect, perfect, authentic shepherd in a class by himself, preeminent above all others. That's amazing. He is the good shepherd. And in sheep ranching, a, a shepherd would do, literally, we're going back to the metaphor, in sheep ranching, a shepherd would do whatever is necessary to protect his sheep from wolves, from ravenous beasts, from thieves. He would even risk his own life. He would even risk his own life and even potentially lay down his own life for his sheep. What he is saying to these people is that as the good shepherd, he will lay down his life for his sheep. And it's important to note that he was not merely contrasting himself with the false shepherds who would basically never risk their lives for the sheep. And he describes that in a moment. Jesus was not just saying, they won't do it, but I would, because he's been saying, here's what they do, here's what I do. He's been nuking them. He's not just doing that here. He was absolutely predicting his substitutionary death on the cross for his sheep. He's pointing forward. I'd say maybe two months later on Calvary's hill, Golgotha, the place of the skull, right? That's what it's called. Jesus, the good shepherd made good on his promise, didn't he? He laid down his life for his sheep. How? On a wooden cross where he bled and died. 
That's how he did it. It is through his, his blood, it is through his death that he secured for his sheep the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. So much is packed into his bloody death. The atonement is made. The payment is made for our sins. The payment is made for our ransom to sin, the curse of the law, and to Satan. He buys us out of slavery. All of these things, theological things, but more importantly, biblical things, happened when he breathed his last breath and died on the cross. That is where he secured the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God through that bloody death. But when we combine Jesus' death with his burial and resurrection, what do we end up with? Life for the sheep, verse 10. You cannot say that they get eternal life through his bloody death alone because that's not the whole gospel. It's the death, burial, and resurrection. So in a matter of two months, he completes the whole transaction. He dies and pays. He's buried to settle the account. He's raised victorious. This is where he gives or how he gives life or eternal life or salvation to his sheep, right? It's through his death, burial, and resurrection. He's telling them, this is what I'm going to do. In verses 12 through 13, Jesus describes the unreliability of these false shepherds. Verse 12, he says this about the guys that are standing there and all the false shepherds. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You talk about putting it on these guys. Again, this is Matthew 23 level correction rebuke here. This is hardcore. I mean, he begins by calling the shepherds of Israel because that's what these guys thought they were. That's what they were. That's what they were supposed to be doing is shepherding God's flock. He calls them hired hands and not shepherds. You're just employees. You're not shepherds because you don't actually shepherd. You might have the title, but you're not doing your job. So you're just hired hands. And as I said, they, they believed without a doubt they were the shepherds of Israel. And not only that, they believed they were the good shepherds. This guy's not the good shepherd. He's a false messiah. We're the good shepherds. But Jesus basically tells them they're nothing more than employees. He then proceeds to describe how they are bad employees because of their pathetic work ethic because they don't fulfill the task they agreed to fulfill. Don't do their job. You get hired to do a job, and you do a terrible job, and you don't follow through with it and do what happens. What happens? And a lot of times you end up getting canned. Most of the time you end up getting canned. Unless, of course, it's with a union, and then they're like, we'd love to fire you, but we can't. You can just continue to be a loser, and we'll continue to pay you. And then even afterwards, we'll give you a pension. This is what I've heard about unions. I don't know. Maybe I should go to work for a union. I could actually keep a job. Uh, yeah, you, you def, definitely. I've never worked for a union, so I have no idea what that's like. But in any case, these guys are terrible employees. They're terrible hired hands. They're not even good at it. They're pathetic. I would describe the religious leaders as mercenaries. 
I'm not talking about they, you know, go out and get hired to go out and kill some kind of person or protect people or whatever it is. Uh, mercenaries, I don't think, protect at all. I think they're hired hands, like ex-military, to go kill. The point I'm making as mercenaries is they do what they do for the money. Mercenaries do what they do, not because that's a real enemy and they, don't, they need to do something for justice or the right reason or anything. They do things for money. They go out and kill and do whatever they're supposed to do because of money. And in a similar way, these false shepherds, these hired hands, were doing religion, doing the job of shepherding for cash money. They did it for the money. And when a wolf came along, now Jesus is not talking about a real wolf here. He's using a metaphor. What would it be? What would a wolf be to someone who's interested in money alone? It would be something or someone who threatens their livelihood or well-being. These guys are like mercenaries. They do religion. They do shepherding for money. And when a wolf, which is something that threatened that money, threatened their livelihood, what did they do? Jesus describes them as fleeing. They run. They flee. They leave the sheep. They get out of there. They disappear. And what happens with the sheep when there's no shepherd there? Well, they're left to themselves. And in sheep ranching, they're vulnerable to sickness, uh, injuries, you know, uh, wolves and these sorts of predators uh, in spiritual terms when there's no shepherd there for the sheep. They're left to work through life issues and spiritual matters without any help, without any sort of under-shepherd guide or anything like that. It's, it's very, very sad. And I, and I don't want to take a shot at, at big churches at all. I, I don't want to do that because I think some big churches do this really well. But the text here kind of reminds me of a lot of large churches where you've got some pastors or one pastor who basically doesn't know anyone because it's too darn big. And people call him their pastor. You can only call him a pastor if he's doing the job of a pastor. And if he's just getting up there and preaching every week and that's all he does, he's not a pastor. He's a speaker. And he might be a talented one. Shepherds have to be in the, in the foxholes, in the trenches, in homes, at hospitals. They have to be everywhere. They have to be where the sheep are. They have to be. This is not just a small church idea. It is what God in his word, calls under shepherds to do. They have to be there with the people. And you know who modeled this really well? The Apostle Paul. He was right there in the church at Corinth. He spent three years in Ephesus with those people, with those believers. He modeled it. We get our marching orders from Jesus primarily, but we can look to the example of Paul. That's how I figure out how to shepherd people. He was right there dealing with the stuff. Didn't look like he had much fun at times, but, you know, it's what you got to do. But this reminds me of a lot of so-called shepherds that are out there, pastors, and, and you don't even know them because it's too big. How can you pastor 4,000 people? Jesus' church was really small when he was on earth, and somehow we're okay with having 4,000 under my leadership. And some of these churches don't even have elder boards. They just have this popish kind of figure who oversees everything. It's insanity. Take that big church and split it up and put smaller churches in the communities and reach neighborhoods. Best thing to do. It really is. Now, do you remember what Matthew 9.36 says? It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they, and here's why he had compassion for them. He looks out, he, he's been touring all over the place and preaching the gospel and healing people and doing all these things. And he get to, gets to this one point where he sees this vast multitude out in front of him. 
and he just looks and he sees people and he can see it in their faces, in their posture, he can hear it in their words and in their conversations, and he's just filled with compassion for them. And it describes why. Because they, they were harassed, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus that, that says this to his disciples. Israel at this time had thousands and thousands of religious leaders. Thousands. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that at this point in the first century, the Pharisees alone, who are religious leaders in the religious establishment headquartered in Jerusalem, they alone numbered 6,000. That's 6,000 shepherds, plus some chief priests who were shepherds, scribes, lots of different kinds of religious leaders. So you had 6,000 Pharisees alone at this time who are shepherds to the people. How is it that the crowds are harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, with so many men in the ministry who are supposed to be caring for those people? How is, how is that even possible? Well, the vast majority of them were not shepherds, were they? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? They were shepherds in title only. In reality, they were, as Jesus put it, a hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep. Now, that's not all of them. I'm sure there were some Pharisees that, you know, took their responsibility very seriously and, and tried their best to love some people. We can't, you know, anathematize them all. But for the most part, you have all these people who are harassed, who are spiritually pulverized, who are sad, who are beat up by the devil and life. And you have all these men on payroll who can't even do their stinking job. Jesus' description in verses 12 through 13 can also be applied to false religion, not just false shepherds. Similar to the false shepherds, False religion is nothing more than a counterfeit that cannot meet our most important need, salvation. False religion and false shepherds are actually, as I already kind of pointed to, they're hired hands of the devil, which he uses to deceive the world, Revelation 12, 9. Jesus moves on in verses 14 to 15. He's already hammered those guys, but now he comes back to himself and he begins to describe his intimate knowledge of his sheep. Look at this repeat here, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. He says it again. I know my own. He's speaking of his sheep. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 14 is obviously a reiteration of verses 3 and 4. As the good shepherd, Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him, right? He's already said that. He calls them by name and they, they know his voice and they follow him, right? They won't follow the strangers. I want you to underline the word know right there in the text. I know, he says, underline K-N-O-W. It's a great word to underline. It is used to denote the love relationship that Jesus has with his sheep, with his people. He loves them similar to how a husband loves his wife and how a wife 
loves her husband. There's that intimacy and that that knowing that person intimately. And when I say intimately, I am not referring to sexually. I am saying I know my wife's quirks and all of these things. And actually, after 25 years, I don't know her very well. She keeps switching on me. But she knows me really well. Like she just, she says something, she knows what's going to come out of me. And I'm like, ah, she goes, I knew you'd say that. What is the deepest form of relationship that we know of or have access to in this life? It's a marriage. That's it. Physically, physical relationship. And so what he's saying here is he knows his sheep in a similar way to that. And this is why the Bible uses marriage language to describe Christ and His church, right? You see that over and over in the New Testament. He's the bridegroom and we are His bride, Revelation 19, 7. It's always weird when you call men the bride of Christ, but that's not what we're pointing to here. We're pointing to the intimate connection and relationship is what He means. In verse 15, Jesus added two illustrations to uh, illustrate the depth of the intimate knowledge and love He has with the sheep of his fold. Now this takes his knowledge of us and his love for us and of us way beyond husbands and wives and marriage analogies or metaphors. This just takes it to a whole nother level, right? Two illustrations he gives. I know my own as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Wow. He's paralleling his knowledge and love and the things that he shares with the Father, he's paralleling it with his sheep. How I know and love him and vice versa, that's how I am with my sheep. This is extraordinary. And what you have here is you have the idea of limitlessness. That's what you need to think of. Limitlessness, without limit, uh, without end. The Father's knowledge of the Son and love for the Son is limitless, right? Without any restriction. The Son's knowledge of the Father and love for the Father is limitless. The Good Shepherd's knowledge of His sheep and love for His sheep is identical to that of the Godhead. Limitless. This is extraordinary. This is so far beyond anything my wife and I could share. I don't know everything about her. I know a lot about her, but I don't know everything about her. She certainly doesn't know everything about me. She thinks she does. And, and she certainly doesn't love me in the purest way, and I absolutely times a million don't do that for her. Completely different with the Good Shepherd. The love that they have in heaven between the Godhead, he says, and the knowledge there, that is how it is with my sheep. It's incredible. How did the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, express his limitless knowledge of his sheep and love for his sheep? Look at the second half of verse 15. Here's the second illustration. I lay down my life for the sheep. You must understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he knew everything about his sheep. He knew everything about me way before I ever existed. He knew everything about you way before you existed. He is omniscient, all knowledge. He goes to the cross with perfect 
limitless knowledge of who you are, everything you would go through, every sin, every good thing, everything, everything was within his mind and understanding at that moment that he goes to the cross, especially our sins, especially our sins, right? Because he goes to the cross to die for those sins. He's dying for a sinner, speaking of me, that hasn't even been born yet, who will sin like crazy. He knows exactly who I am. He loves me, knows all of my sin, and went to make an atonement for that sin and for me, that sinner. And what? He lovingly and willfully laid down his life on that cross to pay for his sheep's sins with his own blood. It's not just about knowing how sinful we were or are. It's about loving us beside that point and deliberately having himself slaughtered by Romans out of pure, just the most perfect love. That's unbelievable. This is why the gospel is good news. What did Jesus tell his disciples during his final week of earthly ministry in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Many a soldier has used this verse to, maybe it's on their tombstone after they've been killed in battle, and boy, it is quite a sacrifice for, for one soldier to lay down his life for his, his other soldiers and all that. that. That's extraordinary. To give your life for someone, to die physically so that someone else can live. Maybe you drown instead of them or whatever. That, that's all extraordinary. But it's not the same as what Jesus did. And he laid down his life for his friends, for his sheep. You see, that one soldier on a battlefield, he didn't die for his fellow soldier's sins. He didn't do it. It's quite extraordinary what Jesus has done. Consider once more the false shepherds. I hate to bring them into it here, but think about what Jesus is saying. They are the antithesis. They're the opposite. They do not know the sheep. Like many pastors today who don't know their sheep. They do not love the sheep. And they certainly would never sacrifice for the sheep. All of this Jesus' words are pregnant with all of this meaning. And these men are standing there listening to this. It must have done something. In verse 16, Jesus declared that his sheepfold will be ethnically limitless. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Other sheep refers to who? Jews? No. Gentiles, non-Jews. God's plan of salvation includes not just Jews, even though the Jews believe that, but Gentiles, non-Jews from every tribe and tongue, Revelation 7, 9. French, thank God, because I'm French. German, Irish, Scottish, Mexican, Malaysian, African, Australian, Filipino, American, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Russian, South American, Brazilian, whatever, Chilean. He's, he's got people and sheep in every ethnicity. Because if Revelation 7-9 says from every tribe and tongue, that means every ethnicity. There are sheep in every ethnicity for all time. And I think the vast majority of his sheep are not Jewish. And he says that he must bring 
the other sheep from all these other ethnicities, from all these other backgrounds, all of these other races. He must bring them into his sheepfold. And the final result will be one flock with one shepherd. Praise God. When Jesus calls each of his Gentile sheep by name, they will listen to his voice and they will come to him. And the process for calling Jewish and Gentile sheep is exactly the same, right? The effectual call is made by the Holy Spirit and they hear it and they come to the good shepherd. In 17 and 18, Jesus presents two attitudes that define his relationship with the Father. These same attitudes should define the relationship between the good shepherd and his sheep, you and I. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There's an interpretative challenge here in, in verse 17. The wording makes it seem like the Father loves Jesus because he lays down his life. Did you notice that? For this reason the Father loves me. And then he describes why. That sounds like earning. That sounds like the Father's love is contingent upon what Jesus does. Now, if that's the case, we end up with false religion. We better get to work and earning our way. This is totally untrue. And it has to do with the way that it's translated into the English language. The Father's love for the Son is not contingent upon what the Son does or does not do. Doesn't have anything to do with it. There's no earning within the Godhead or within Christianity. A more proper rendering, and I did actually check this, fact check this against some pretty good scholars. A more proper rendering of that verse there would be, because the Father loves me, that is the reason I lay down my life. That's how we should look at it. The other way is not compliant with the gospel. The two attitudes represented here are love and obedience. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Son expresses His love for the Father through obedience to the Father's will. Uh, what is the Father's will for Jesus in this context? That He lay down His life for His sheep in accordance with the divine plan of salvation. That's what we've been talking about in John the whole time. Here's my paraphrase of 17 and 18. Jesus basically says, no one is making me lay down my life. No one is forcing me to lay down my life. I am going to lay down my life and I will raise it up again. Why? Because the Father loves me and I love the Father. And he says, basically, again, paraphrase, I have the authority, I have the right to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. And I have chosen to do so. And the Father charged me to proceed with the plan. When we look at a cross, we usually think of God's love for us, right? That's what it represents, right? We know Jesus died on a cross. And we know He did it out of love. For God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. We get all that. But His love for us isn't the only thing we should think of. We should also think of God's love for God. So when you look at that, Think of Jesus not only loving you, but also loving the Father and obeying His word and will. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves them both, and vice versa. There's so much love, perfect love, unadulterated love going around in that Godhead, it's unbelievable. And the Trinity expresses its love for one another in how they serve one another. 
If we belong to his sheepfold, these two attitudes, love and obedience, must also define our relationship with the Good Shepherd. Because the Good Shepherd loves us, we love him, and we express our love for him through obedience to his will, which is in his word. God loves us first. We love him in response, and we show that love through obedience to his word. What does 1 John 5, 3 say? For this demonstrates our love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not difficult. Lastly, how did Jesus' listeners react to what I think is an incredible teaching? Well, they were divided. Look at 19 through 21. It says, there was again, because this happened several times before Jesus taught, and there was a division that happened before with the same people. He says, there was again a division among the Jews, and primary focus here is not the Jewish people, but the religious leaders. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And look at how these two camps responded. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And the others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember, that had just happened, the healing of that blind man. So you've got two groups that already existed, that were already divided, but this teaching caused both groups to further divide and argue with one another. And several weeks ago, I said one group was the illogical group, One group was the logical group, and that's what you have playing out here. The illogical group saw all the miracles, listened to these incredible teachings, had no ability or propensity toward logic, and kept coming up with insanity stuff, calling Jesus insane. The logical group said, these are not the words of a normal person. Look at what he did to that guy over there. He must be who he says he is or darn close to it. Closing. How do we react to Jesus' teaching here? I mean, that's where the text ends, right? 19 through 20, it ends there. How do we react to what I believe is an incredible teaching? What camp are we in? Camp one, Jesus must be possessed by a demon and insane. Why listen to him? Is that the camp you're in? You hear the words of Jesus and you're just like, this is just stupid. It's just, it can't be. Shepherding, who cares? Only he can save me. Only he's the door. Come on, is that the camp you're in? Are you in camp two? These aren't the words of a demon-possessed insane person. Consider how he opened the eyes of the blind beggar. Demons don't do that. Are you in the illogical camp or the logical camp? Well, hopefully you're in neither of those camps. Hopefully you're in the sheepfold. Okay? Because just because you have some ability to use logic to kind of try to figure out who Jesus is and understand what's going on there doesn't mean you're in him. There's a lot of people out there that employ logic, but don't go all the way with it. Which camp are you in? Camp one, camp two, or you're not in any of those camps. You're in the sheep pen. You're in the sheep fold. Well, here's some qualifiers. You think you're in the sheep fold? Do you have biblical faith? Knowledge? We know who Christ is and what he has done for us, died, buried, and rose. Conviction, we agree with who Christ is and what he did for us. It's not just a matter of knowing. You, you have conviction. You, you're like, wow, he did that for me, and you believe that. That's a conviction that you have. Trust, you have confidence in who Christ is and what he did for you. You're basically just trusting in him alone, in his person and work. That's who you are. You know, you got the conviction, and you're trusting. 
Is that you? Do the attitudes of love and obedience define your relationship with the Good Shepherd? He loves us, we love Him, and we express our love for Him through obedience to His will, which is in His Word. The existence of biblical faith, right, the knowledge, conviction, trust, and the defining attitudes of love and obedience testify to the fact that we have been called by the Good Shepherd, saved by the Good Shepherd, and brought into the Good Shepherd's sheepfold, that we are indeed His sheep. So if that's you, I say enjoy the abundant life He bled and died to give you. Don't take it for granted, and certainly do not waste it on yourself. I'm not saying your salvation's a waste. I'm saying it is a total waste when we know who we are in Christ and we never share that message or our experiences with anyone else and we keep it all to ourselves. That's a waste. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't jive with the text that Dan read earlier. We have a mission, friends. We're to make disciples in every nation. Why every nation? Because he has sheep in every nation that need to hear the gospel. We need to go. Don't don't take the abundant life that he secured for you through his slaughter. Don't take it for granted and don't waste it on yourself. Live it out for the good shepherd. Live it out for others. Live it out for others. And if you do not have biblical faith, or the defining attitudes of love and obedience. You're not in the sheepfold. You're still a goat. But you don't have to stay a goat. You don't have to stay a goat. I'll repeat what I said at the end of my sermon last Sunday. Hear the summons of the Good Shepherd today. Hear the summons of the Good Shepherd today. Repent and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Believe that he, he lived for your righteousness. He died for your sin. He was buried to settle your account. He rose from the grave for your victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Believe that. Believe what he did for you. The Bible absolutely teaches that if you repent and trust in him alone, it teaches that you will be saved. You will be welcomed into the sheepfold. Amen.